The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. We realize that we are not really running our our electoral process uh, to effectuate the will of the the people. And and this does relate, I think, to the broader topic of the need to protect democracy from the threat of election denialism, because the the polarizing effect of how we do primary elections is what enables denialists potentially to win more seats in Congress, win more seats in various offices around the country, like secretaries of state and governors and so forth, when in fact, taking the exact same preferences that the voters have, a a different system that didn't do primaries the way we do it wouldn't have the same outcomes. And we have not had a national conversation about just how problematic uh, that element of our electoral system is, and I think we desperately need it. I'm Scott R. Anderson, and this is The Lawfare Podcast for October 5th, 2022. After months of mostly quiet, behind-the-scenes debate, both the House and Senate seem ready to move forward with reforming the Electoral Count Act, the 1887 statute governing how Congress counts electoral votes, whose various ambiguities played a central role in unsuccessful plans to turn the 2020 election results in favor of former President Trump. Experts are all but unanimous on the need to reform the law, and both proposals have at least some bipartisan support, including from Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell but the path forward remains far from certain. To discuss what comes next, I sat down with Ned Foley, a leading election law expert and professor at Ohio State University's Moritz College of Law, and Geneviève Nadeau, a counsel at the organization Protect Democracy who has been engaging on reform efforts. We discussed the similarities and differences between the House and Senate reform proposals, how they will strengthen our election process, and what work remains to be done. It's the Lawfare Podcast for October 5th, an update on Electoral Count Act reform. So Ned, Jean-Vieb, we're really happy to have you back on the podcast to once again start talking through some of the most important sets of reforms we're seeing coming out of the debacle around the 2020 election. And that is the series of measures that aim at reforming the much maligned Electoral Count Act of 1887, a law whose ambiguity became a major point of contention, uh, was used, or at least tempted to be used by various parties, particularly supporters of former President Trump, to turn election results in 2020 in, in a particular direction. And that the reform of which has been a major focus of a lot of people, including some of you, for several years <laughs> beyond, prior to 2020, but now has become a bit more of a national focus of, of people in both parties in Congress. 
Genevieve, why don't I turn it to you first? Can you give us a little bit of a scene setter about where we are procedurally? Well, what is the bills that we're talking about? And where are we on that progression from proposed legislation to actual enactment at this point? Well, so it's been a busy year uh, so far in terms of updating the Electoral Count Act. We've seen movement on uh, both the House and the Senate side. Uh, first, really in the Senate, um, Senators King, Klobuchar, and Durbin released a discussion draft. Um, I think the Electoral Count Modernization Act is what they called it uh, early in the year. Um, and around the same time, the House Administration Committee issued a very detailed and thoughtful report on weaknesses in the current law and potential fixes. And, you know, not long after that, then we heard an announcement of a bipartisan working group in the Senate led by uh, Susan Collins and Joe Manchin, who then spent months sort of building their group and working out potential uh, reforms. That group introduced legislation in July. And then there was a, a rules committee, so it falls within the jurisdiction of the Senate Rules Committee. Uh, that committee had a hearing in August, which really sort of showcased broad bipartisan support and consensus on updating the statute and you know, highlighted some areas of, of, of concern with, with the, the Senate bill. And then, then more recently, the, on the House side, we actually saw another bill introduced by Representatives Lofgren and Cheney, so a bipartisan effort there as well. And then I think most recently what we saw is another meeting of the Senate Rules Committee, not a hearing, but this time a meeting uh, where the managers of the committee, so Klobuchar and Blunt, uh, introduced a slightly revised version of their bill, the Electoral Count Reform Act. Uh, And then that that amended version was uh, passed out of committee on a near unanimous vote of uh, 14 to 1, uh, so a bipartisan vote with, I think, two additional votes by proxy in support of the bill. And so that's where we are. We've got bills in both the House and the Senate. I think we're probably going to see a little bit of a break with the election coming up. Um, And then, you know, there's there's real urgency behind this, of course. And I think a commitment sort of all around to take this up uh, and get something passed by the end of the year. So, Ned, you really have been following Electoral Count Act issues and reforms longer than most people, certainly prior to 2020 election. And I've done thinking about this. Where does this development Um, the emergence of these bills fit within the kind of history of the Electoral Count Act in terms of the problems it poses, concerns about how it might be implemented? How notable a development is this? And how are you thinking about these two bills and what Congress should be doing in the space doing next? How, how, How do you advise we think about it as voters and as other engaged and concerned citizens as we weigh this path Congress has taken so far and where it's going from here? Well, you're right. Uh, thanks, Scott. And when I started really focusing on this topic in 2010, it was sort of the backwater of election law. It was very arcane and uh, obscure. Um, and unfortunately, obviously, the events of January 6th have, have made the front and center, you know, in our national life and, and, and our sense of self-government. You know, I think the moment that we're in is huge, hugely important. And, and hu- I'm hugely optimistic that you know, we will get passage uh, of a major significant reform as a result of the process that Jean-Vierre outlined. Um, You know, I I don't want to count my chickens before they hatch, so to speak. It's essential that the process be complete. (laughs) We don't have any bill enacted into law and signed yet. And so until uh, that happens, we haven't had success yet. But, But I think it's fair to say that we are getting closer and almost on the verge of potential success if the process finishes the way we foresee and hope that it will. And the reason why I say it's huge is because 
this statute as it currently exists, the one adopted in 1887, is just deeply flawed in, in ways I think now is widely perceived. It was a, a, a difficult uh, statute for Congress to adopt way back in 1887 because that was 10 years after uh, the disputed election of 1876, essentially a decade later. And, and, and Congress, it took 10 years of effort and, and much failure. I mean, they tried to pass a statute immediately after the debacle of 1876 and they couldn't do it. They tried again after the 1880 election, they couldn't do it. They tried it again after 1884, uh, immediately couldn't do it. It was only when they were on the verge of the 1888 election that they said, we've got to have something. And they passed a statute that they knew to be flawed that papered over some differences and ambiguities and, and, and gave us the statute hopeful that it might get revised, you know, before, you know, hundreds of years passed, so to speak, and, but it didn't. And then uh, this dangerous statute left us vulnerable, you know, on January 6th. And so, you know, the fact that it looks like we're capable of actually completing a significant and important revision to it, you know, in the first Congress after the January 6th, I mean, in other words, we, um, it'll be the same Congress that met on that January 6th that will then, before that Congress ends this December, will have adopted a reform, you know, that's a much better track record than what happened um, back in the 19th century. And the reform is a good one. And uh, we can talk about the details of that. So I think we can be happy about the, uh, the process where it is now. So let's get into those details because the details matter in this case. And frankly, these bills are very tricky because they are taking the Electoral Count Act as it's already reflected in statute with some minor amendments over the years in the U.S. Code and amending parts of it. But it's very hard to make sense of what those amendments do standing alone. You have to really put it in the context of the existing process, which itself is not the best written law, to say the least, uh, is fairly difficult to read and requires a lot of contextualization understanding. So let's go step by step through the Senate bill, the Senate rules bill. This is the latest version where we saw some minor changes introduced through debate or following debate in the Rules Committee by way of an amendment before the Rules Committee approved it uh, in the last week or so. jean have start us walking through some of these changes. Let's start with what the Senate bill does in terms of fixing the time of election day. It, it makes the point that uh, election day happens on a fixed date. It then kind of lays out the formula about how it's every four years of election day and makes the point that electors are supposed to be appointed in accordance with the laws of the state enacted prior to election day. And actually amends a couple provisions of the Electoral Count Act to make that point about laws enacted prior to election day, state laws. What's the significance of that and how how significant a step of, is that? And did the Rules Committee introduce any changes along the lines of in, in this particular section? Yeah, I think this is actually one of the most important things uh, that the Senate bill does. And, and the House does something similar for what it's worth. You know, of course, you know, states choose the manner in which electors are appointed in our electoral college system. But Congress sets the date and the timing on which electors are appointed and you know, we've had this law in the books for uh, many, many years now that provides for election day, but also includes, you know, I, I refer to it as section two, it's three USC section two, that says that if a state holds an election for purposes of appointing electors and essentially fails to make a choice, then the state legislature can determine the manner of appointing electors after election day, essentially. 
you know, there's a decent historical evidence about what that was intended to mean and importantly not intended to mean, uh, but the the terms are not defined in the statute. Um, and I think maybe some of the meaning has been misconstrued over time. And so it has been misunderstood to allow state legislatures to declare a failure for any number of, of reasons and, and uh, sort of purport to step in and appoint electors, perhaps even in contravention of the popular vote. So what the Senate bill does is really fix that it makes very clear that there is one election day, and that's the date on which electors must be appointed, and that they must be appointed pursuant to laws in place prior to that date. So that's really important. Then it does address this question of, you know, what if there's a problem, essentially? What if the election cannot be effectively completed on that day? And what it says is that, in ex- you know, if there are extraordinary and catastrophic events that prevent the election would be completed, then pursuant, again, to state laws in place in advance, a state can extend voting um, if that's necessary. So what it does is eliminate this concept of a failed election and the sort of ambiguities around that, but leaves a very narrow opening sort of necessitated by extraordinary circumstances for not for state legislatures or others to step in, uh, but to allow for an extended voting period. And that, you know, the term that the, that the Senate bill uses is extraordinary and catastrophic. And one, I would say one change that was made as a result of the sort of amendment process in this most recent round at the Rules Committee is to add just a few words, but to clarify that what that means are, you know, sort of force majeure events. So what it says is, you know, if an extension of voting is necessitated by force majeure events that are extraordinary and catastrophic, then that, that can that can be done pursuant to state law. So it's really a very narrow exception to having to appoint electors on election day with now some even more clear parameters that I think importantly are, are meant to, to to ensure that you know claims of fraud or other things are not sort of shoehorned into this concept of extraordinary and catastrophic events. That's that's fantastically useful. Thank you. And so then then we see this bill kind of introduce another set of interrelated changes, I think it's it's useful to talk about together, where first it lays out the responsibility of the governor, the state executive, although acknowledges that a state can expressly through its own laws assign this responsibility to another official. But the presumption is that the governor or the executive of the state for filing certifications of who, that ascertain the identity of electors reached through and consistent with state law, you know, most cases now are all states right now that is by election although you know states have in the past used other methods to arrive at their electors but says essentially the governor has to certify the identity of those electors 6 days before the date on which the electors are supposed to cast their their votes that tell us a little bit about what that process does what why, how this shores up the existing electoral account act process and why it's important and then tell us a little bit about the judicial review provisions that are pretty unique that this law brings in and is something the rules committee tweaked a little bit that is a, a pretty significant development from the electoral account act and that is, interfaces a bit with this delegation of authority in terms of providing a vehicle for challenging certain actions by certain parties potentially in the courts Right. I think this is in some ways the heart of the reform and, and why it's so promising, because it does fix a real defect in the, the current law. And, and the philosophy of the reform is, as jean was alluding to, is that electors must be appointed according to the state law as specified in advance of the appointment itself. So state law provides for the method of appointment likely to be a popular vote in every state, as it's been for you know, decades and decades. And so there are rules for casting those ballots and counting those votes. 
and you hope that there's no litigation or dispute over that and and so you know in the ordinary course the, there'll be a result as to the popular vote in a given state and the governor will certify that or the executive of the state will certify that that will uh, go to Congress uh, for the joint session and get counted. Uh, so that's kind of the baseline assumption and expectation of how the system is designed to work. But then if there happens to emerge a dispute over the outcome of the popular vote in a state upon which the appointment of the electors is based, what the new statute would do once adopted is make clear that it's the rules for adjudicating that dispute that control. Those rules, again, are set in advance of election day in November, advance of the appointment itself. And those rules have to be followed uh, by all state officials involved in the process of counting ballots and, and certifying the result. And so there can be litigation under state law. There could also be litigation that goes to federal court. But the essence of the statute now is that whatever the courts decide controls. And it does so you know, in the first instance, by obligating the governor or the executive of the state to obey the judicial decree, as you say, it provides a, uh, a new judicial review procedure to enforce compliance with that obligation to uh, certify the result of the popular vote in accordance to whatever judicial determination of the outcome is. But even if you have renegade officials refusing to comply, a crucial element of, of the Senate bill uh, says that nonetheless, the judicial decree is conclusive. And indeed, if the federal courts are involved, it's the ultimate final determination of the federal courts that is conclusive under the supremacy of federal law. And so that is what ends up being controlling when the matter goes to Congress in the joint session. So there's really no possibility under uh, the revised uh, statute for rogue state officials to try to repudiate uh, the rule of law outcome. And, and I think that's what's so important. It says that the, the determination of who won the popular vote should be settled according to the rule of law. We have institutions and procedures for doing that. It's evidence-based, it's rule-based, and that will be uh, controlling. And, and that's what the bill does. I think one of the important things, if we sort of zoom out a little bit that the bill is doing, it's, it's to Ned's point, of course, you know, ensuring that what gets to Congress ultimately is just one lawful slate of electors and that Congress can therefore fulfill its role of counting, right? That's what essentially what Congress's role is. And so part of what the bill does in this sort of very carefully constructed way is really reinforce what the original ACA, I think, was intended to do, which is create a balance between the role of the states and the role of Congress. And I think that has sometimes been been a little bit lost here and there in the history of the way the, the statute's been interpreted. But you saw this come out during the various rules committee hearings and what this does, this bill does at a high level is sort of reset that and make clear the role of the states in appointing electors, but also includes important checks on that that also have the effect of ensuring that Congress sort of sticks to its appropriate role as well. Well, and notably, these judicial review provisions were the thing that the Rules Committee seemed to have the most feedback, or at least got that got the most feedback in the debate leading up to the Rules Committee's vote, where they substituted in a, a light amendment, where most of the amendments kind of focused on these judicial review provisions, making space for both state and federal proceedings more expressly, although I don't know if that was excluded or the original language, but making clear that you can have both of those. Also making U.S. Supreme Court uh, review discretionary through the usual certiorari process, not mandatory, as I believe the original language suggested it should be. 
Can you tell us, Ned, a little bit about what the logic and the debate around these ideas was that led to these changes? And and do you see them as significant or really clarifications about the way the process maybe was intended to do in the original law? Yeah, so yeah, I do think some of these um, changes were you know technical, and, and it's good that they were adopted. I think a lot of people were looking at the details and pointing out exactly you know how the process might unfold if there was a, a full-fledged dispute. So I, I think it was wise uh, to make Supreme Court review discretionary instead of mandatory, for example, and there was a, a technical fix to some of the, the dates and the timings of those procedures. You know, to stepping back a little bit, there there has been some kind of discussion and maybe confusion in in some of the debates, maybe in Congress and in the public understanding about whether it was absolutely essential uh, to make sure that you know the judicial process you know forced the governor to send the right piece of paper to Congress because if the right piece of paper didn't get to Congress, then Congress couldn't do do the right thing. And, you know, some of the difference between the way the House bill is constructed and the Senate bill is constructed, you know, tries to handle this issue in a different way. I, I think what the Senate bill does, which is quite elegant, is that it, it, it you know, it contemplates, again, the, the ideal circumstances to get that right piece of paper from the governor. That's what the governor is supposed to do. The governor is supposed to follow the rule of law and obey the courts when the courts say this is the candidate that won the popular vote and so forth. But in fact, there is this backstop now in the Senate bill that says, you know, ultimately, it's not that piece of paper that's essential. Um, what's essential is that comes from the governor. What's essential is the judicial decree that declares uh, the rule of law answer, and that actually tracks the language of the Twelfth Amendment appropriately. The the Twelfth Amendment speaks of the elect of the electors themselves sending their electoral votes to the Senate president, and then they get open and counted in this special joint session, again called for by the Twelfth Amendment. That's the special joint session that occurred on January 6th. So the electors uh, send their own votes to, to Congress, in effect, to the Senate president, but they need to have some documentation uh, that authorized them to be the correct electors. They can't just, you know, ordinary people can't just say, we're the electors, <laughs> count our votes. We, you know, we saw what happened in 2020, uh, unfortunately, when individuals which had no official backing of government tried to claim that they were electors when they had no basis for doing so. Congress gets to decide how it's going to tell what official documentation it gets from the states that provides that evidence of authorization that these are the real electors. And again, historically, Congress has appropriately called upon the executive of, a, of each state government to send that document, and it's come to be known as a certificate of ascertainment. But Congress is also completely within its uh, constitutional authority to say, you know, that document could come from the state judiciary if that's the document that, that actually tells us who the true electors from the state are. And so the, the way the Senate bill is constructed and some of the, the technical language tweaks, you know, as a result of the markup process, I think clarifies this even more, is that, again, we, we look in the first instance to the piece of paper that, that is the governor's piece of paper, the way it gets to Congress, it gets attached to what the electors themselves send. But, you know, if that piece of paper is lacking or if that piece of paper is contradicted by a judicial decree, it's ultimately the, the judicial decree that is conclusive and authoritative as to who the true electors are. One change, though, Scott, that, that the, the a manager's amendment does make, though, it's just a couple of words, but it does make clear 
and and in this way, among others, sort of narrows some of the differences between the House and Senate bill, as it does, I think, make make clear now that the court can order the issuance of a you know revised or modified certificate. So it sort of covers all the bases now, I think, as as slightly amended. You know, I think that's right, and that and I and again, I think that's a kind of the belt and suspenders approach. But I, you know, I, I do think it is important to focus on the fact that again, you want you want that court order to happen, and you want the governor to obey the court order. But if you want to make sure that we don't have a situation where defiance and rogue behavior in the states is prevails, you need to have the kind of backstop that, um, you know, is built into this Senate bill, I think, correctly. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I 
found a, a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. But that leads us really well into the other third big area of reform. There are little other things the bill does. It does things like, you know, direct the National Archivist to make uh, copies of certifications received available for public inspection, uh, which I think is kind of interesting and notable. A couple other little tweaks here and there. But the big other area where we see changes the Senate bill introduces is to that process by which Congress counts the electoral votes and kind of not just counts them, but also debates to what extent there might be issues with them. Jean-Vivre, can you walk us through the set of changes this makes to that big debate that is supposed to happen on or was supposed to happen on January 6th, at least in 2021, and has become such a focus of discussion since about vulnerabilities in the elections process. Right. Right. So Congress's job on January 6th is to count the votes. And, you know, as Ned, of course, described, that includes some amount of determining what the votes are and um, making sure they've got got the right ones. But the, the process that the Senate bill sort of outlines, you know, in some ways is not dramatically different from current law, with the exception that, you know, if you read the bill together, it should ensure that only one lawful slate from each state is presented to, to Congress to count in the first place. So, but the but the Senate bill makes a couple of important changes from current law, and the first is that it changes the threshold uh, for members of Congress to object to either you know, a slate of electors, the appointed electors, or to the votes of of appointed electors. Um, and it raises instead of you know it requiring only one member of each chamber to lodge a cognizable objection, the Senate bill would require I think it's one fifth of each chamber, and. Then that you know, if if that threshold is is reached, it triggers a similar process of the of the the chambers separating and voting by majority vote on whether or not to sustain an objection. So one one piece is the raising the threshold, and that's important because um, you know I think it, it 
really just sort of raises the bar to interrupting and disrupting the process, which in and of itself, I think, is it's problematic and a problematic trend that we've seen over many elections now. The other thing it does is is add more clarity to the grounds for objection and importantly, sort of distinguishing between objections to the lawfulness of the appointed electors versus objections to the, the nature of the votes cast by otherwise lawfully appointed electors. And so it specifies the sort of two categories. And again, then it requires the members to separate and, and vote and makes it much more difficult for Congress to sort of reject a vote through that process as it should be. And then, you know, beyond that, what it does is specify what is a sort of a latent ambiguity in current law of what happens if Congress does reject a vote as un- unlawfully given or as an appointment of electors as unlawful? How does that affect the calculation at the end of the day of who won? The sort of denominator question. Um, I'm happy to say a bit more about that, but it sort of takes you through now the meeting of Congress, how that objection process both substantively and procedurally works, and then what happens at the end of the day if uh, votes are rejected. Well, so let's let's walk down the, those paths a little bit more. And I'm particularly interested in my understanding, at least, is one of the reforms that, again, that came out of this Rules Committee discussion, I believe, and alluded to earlier, is the fact that you see a, a kind of prioritization of judicial process. So, Ned, why don't you talk to us a little bit about what is the formula? There's a kind of a famous formula that was part of the original Electoral Count Act as a point of some debate, including at least two kind of distinct readings about what it actually meant. I don't think I ever got a full resolution about which electoral set of electoral votes should be counted in the event of different sorts of conflict, depending on who certified what. What formula does this introduce? What is the substantive guide that Congress is trying to bind itself to the mast with uh, in terms of whose votes get counted? Yeah, I think that's exactly right to, to focus on that. I mean, the, the what's so dangerous about the current law is, again, it's, you know, it's this very convoluted passage it's it's this is section 15 of title 3 it's where it's caught the electoral count act uh, procedures for what congress does in the joint session and how it's supposed to follow it it's a, and it is an impenetrable mass of words but in the middle of the impenetrable mass is this one sen- or actually sort of towards the end but it's sort of you can find uh in the text uh a situation where if there have been two alternative slates of electors coming from the same state and the two chambers of Congress diverge as to which of the two to count, whichever one of those two slates was certified, the governor is supposed to have priority and in effect be counted. It it functions as a kind of tie-breaking mechanism if the House of Representatives and the Senate can't agree what to do. And that's what's so dangerous if you envision the possibility that you know, some governor might go rogue, uh, you know, a, a so-called election denialist governor in a, in a battleground state and simply ignores uh, the will of the people through the popular vote, ignores the court decrees and so forth. And so if, if a set of electors having been certified by a governor, even if it's a preposterous certification that, you know, again, it's the denial of the reality, if that arrives in, in Congress... Even if there is another submission that has a judicial decree that explains in an evidence-based way that it is the accurate count of the popular vote, and that's why those electors are the true electors, 
if one chamber of Congress under the, this is under the current 1887 statute, if just one chamber of Congress, not both, but just one chamber of Congress says, well, we're gonna go with what the governor says, not what the courts say, uh, this one sentence seems to absolutely require the, the Senate president to announce that the governor's submission prevails. That is not at all what happens under the revised bill. Instead, uh, you know, to the contrary, it's the judicial determination that controls. Again, the idea here is that there's only one true submission. But if the governor insists on sending a piece of paper that has no basis in reality, and that does arrive in Congress, it's not entitled to be considered authoritative. What must be considered authoritative uh, is the determination that was made by the judicial process. And so that, you know, so a governor's submission doesn't function as the tiebreaker. Both chambers of Congress, the entire joint session process has to accept uh, as valid the submission of electoral votes that has been determined to be correct according to judicial decree. And the other big focus of this process has been the role of the vice president as chairing this procedure. There were bold assertions of the vice president's authority in 2020 or 2021, I should say, um, made by some parties, although Vice President Pence did not actually embrace them fullheartedly. Also focus on the objectors, the objections you can raise, how the procedure goes through. Jean-Viev, walk us through that. Let's close it out with this discussion. What does this actually do with those two questions of authority? Because it, it, it really ties them in and constrains them much more than the older electoral account acted. Isn't that right? Yeah, that's right. The vice president's role is, is an important piece of this in large part because it, you know, it played so prominently in, in the last election. But what the bill would do is make clear what I, th what I think is already the right interpretation of current law is that the vice president plays a largely ministerial role in the process of counting votes. Um, and that, you know, it would still serve as the presiding officer, but not have the ability to make substantive decisions about which electors to count or to resolve disputes and the like. So, uh, you know, the pre the vice president's role is to present <laughs> Congress with the the certificates of of appointed electors and votes that come from the state, and to call for objections. The Senate bill, like I said, provides for two categories of objections. The first is that you know the the appointment of electors was not lawful. That really should not come into play, except maybe in some extraordinary circumstances. But, be, but because for all the reasons that you know, Ned in particular has outlined, Congress should have only one lawful slate of electors or even conceivably lawful slate of electors from each state. But then the second ground for objection is that the votes by the electors were not, quote, regularly given. And that is a, a term that carries over from, from current law, but essentially gets at the lawfulness of votes cast by the electors themselves. So not the appointment. It's not a question about who won and did the state submit the right sort of electors uh, following the election, but did those electors, once appointed, did they vote uh, for an ineligible candidate? Was the elector him or herself somehow ineligible to hold office? Did they vote on the wrong day or that that sort of thing? So that that's the second much more narrow category of objection, which again, it, it could in theory apply to a, a slate of electors, but really is about just looking at individual electoral votes. And so those are the two grounds, like I said before, it now under the Senate bill would take a much more substantial portion of each chamber to even trigger that process in the first place, one fifth of each uh, in writing, 
that would then trigger a process by which the chambers separate and vote required a majority of each chamber and the chambers voting together to reject votes at the end of the day. No, I just want to underscore exactly what Jean-Vier said. I mean, the, the, this provision in the in the new bill is important both because of the procedural threshold that Jean-Vier has described, but 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 by limiting the substantive basis of an objection, what the bill essentially does is it says it is not a proper. It doesn't matter how many senators and representatives sign on; they could whether they meet that threshold numerical threshold or not, it is not a cognizable basis of objection under the new statute to claim, to try to attack uh, an appointment of electors that receive that conclusive determination pursuant to the judicial process. So, So no senator or representative is entitled to say, well, we think the judges got it wrong. We think the popular vote is different from what uh, the lit- litigation process thought it was, that that is not an appropriate basis for objection under uh, the bill as drafted. That's right. I, I think that's important for a few reasons. One is just sort of reigning in the process, of course. And like I said earlier, making sure that you know Congress is sort of within the confines of its appropriate constitutional role and that state's role is respected as well. I also think there's a normative value when what we saw is sort of in the last election and, and some before are just different takes and confusion about the appropriate role of Congress and others in, in, in second guessing what states have done. And it, it certainly, I think it has an effect in terms of the spread of information or disinformation and the understanding among the, you know, the American public about what's happened in the election. And so really putting tight rules around what's appropriate for members of Congress to do or not do and the, the appropriate grounds for objection and, and you know, therefore its appropriate role, I, th- I think has a real normative value as well. So We've gotten through the Senate bill, and, and I want to go on and talk m- about the significance of this legislation, where it goes next. But I do think we need to spend a few moments talking about the House bill. Um, Jean-Vivre, can you give us give us a quick sense about what are the differences, what are the things that the House bill would do different, and, and some of the logic behind that? Um, is it simply a different approach? They've settled on different thresholds where there's a variety of potentially right answers, or are there real substantive differences between the two chambers' versions of this legislation? Yeah. Well, let me start just quickly with what they have in common. I mean, I think at a, at a high level, the sort of intent and general effect of the, the Senate and House bills is largely the same. There are some differences in the details. You know, whether they're they're small or large is a little bit in the eye of the beholder, I guess. But just to tick through a couple of, for example, so the House bill would set the threshold for members of Congress to lodge objections at one third rather than one fifth. Uh, so I think it's just that much harder. And it, it, you know, again to the the point of objections would go a bit further in terms of actually enumerating very specific grounds, but again within the same sort of general category as the Senate bill. So there's some sort of definitional difference there. One difference is that, you know, sort of going back to the, the where we started, uh, the the changes that the, the Senate bill would make to the current Section 2 and the concept of a failed election, the House bill would similarly get rid of that concept and allow for extended voting in very narrow circumstances. It adds more definition uh, than the Senate bill. But it's essentially, especially now with the the amendments that were made more recently to the Senate bill, sort of get at the same kind of idea of you know, force majeure, catastrophic events that are sort of outside, unexpected and outside the, the control of, of administrators of elections. Um, you know, one other difference is that the, the House bill would provide for a role for the federal courts in sort of serving a little bit of a gatekeeping function before an election can be extended. 
under those circumstances. And so that that respect, it's, a, it's sort of different procedurally than the Senate bill, which uh, provides the parameters, but then otherwise leaves it to state law to, to sort of work out the details. You know, I the other difference I think I'd point out between uh, the House and Senate bill is that the, the House bill would sort of change the dates of the certification by the governor and then the subsequent meeting of the Electoral College just a bit, build in a little bit more time between the two. But again, you know, whether or not these differences are, are big or small is a little bit subjective. But what we have seen is, particularly with the amendment to the uh, the Senate bill, is these sort of come a bit closer together. And so they're really, I think, you know, these are these are tricky issues where there are policy differences and different ways that people might write or define things. But at, at the end of the day, I think what they actually do in terms of clarifying the statute and sort of right setting the different roles of the states and Congress and the like, and including the vice president, are actually quite similar. And of course, we know the next step of this process is likely to be, assuming that after the Rules Committee, the Senate votes on this, and it appears to have the votes to actually pass the Senate uh, with the bipartisan margins, uh, although correct me if I'm wrong about that. But assuming that that takes place, then these two versions of the bill are going to come together in conference. And it's going to be up to you know the conference committee to resolve the differences and put the kind of consolidated, mixed-up version back to the vote for both chambers. Ned, let me start with you, although, John, I'd invite your input on this, too. What sort of changes do we expect to come out of conference that might be from what we've discussed already, to the extent we have any insight? Like, Are, are there House elements that the Senate has signaled it's more open to or vice versa that we expect to come out of this? Uh, and what would you like to see to come out of this? Are there, are there parts that you want to see of a particular one bill or another kind of transfer over? Or, or is it the difference is just not that big that it won't matter what comes out in the wash? Yeah, I, mean, I, I think the essential thing is that a bill gets passed and signed by the president. I, I think at this point, the, the details are, are, are much, much less important. And so I, you know, I, I don't foresee the conference process breaking down, but that would be a disaster and a real tragedy. Um, whatever the results from the conference, process is so much better than the current law, which is a disaster, you know, we should be happy about it. Um, You know, there are provisions in the House bill that I personally would prefer. Raising the the threshold to one-third, as Jean-Pierre said, is an example of that, you know, specifying the grounds of objections even more the way the House does. So, you know, I think there are features of the um, House bill that are desirable. You know, there are, I think, a couple of elements of the Senate bill, actually, that might be the better version of it. But, but it, you know, it's not up for me as one person to, to say this is, <laughs> this is the way the bill should be adopted. It's obviously a collective process in, in Congress. And I think the political reality of, of the situation is the final product needs to end up looking more like the Senate bill than the House bill in order for it to pass the Senate, just the, you know, given the 60-vote the threshold for cloture, you know, given the fact that uh, Senator McConnell has has uh, blessed, in effect, the process that has emerged uh, from the Collins Mansion Joint Bipartisan Group, and now has gone through the Rules Committee under the leadership of both Senators Klobuchar and Blunt, Senator McConnell, I, I believe, I heard him make a statement saying, you know, he was happy with that Senate bill, but he was not happy uh, with the House bill. You know, right or wrong. I think that's a political reality, and so I think it's going to be necessary for uh, the final product to, you know, look more like the Senate bill. You know, there may be some grounds for negotiation. I mean, it seems to me, 
if one bill says the threshold is one fifth and the other one says one third, isn't there an obvious compromise at one fourth, uh, for example? You know, but but you, you know nothing should get hung up on that, on where that numerical threshold ends up. You know, and, and frankly, if if you know if it were just the Senate bill uh, in its current form that was adopted, that you know that would be a huge win, even if making it look a little bit more like the house in some respects would, would make it better, but, but take the win when you can is, is my attitude. I completely agree. I mean, I think like Ned, I think getting, you know, an improved bill passed by the end of the year is the most important thing. And with the sort of, you know, is it better than the current status quo under, under the current ECA? Then if the answer is yes, and I think it's a strong yes with respect to, with respect to both bills, but if that's if the answer is yes and it fixes the main weaknesses in in the current statute, then the priority's got to be coming together to get it done. And I I feel uh, cautiously optimistic. And if Ned mentioned not counting chickens in advance, I don't do that either. But you know the the Senate bill now has I think thirty two sponsors, um, including Collins and Manchin, and and a bipartisan sponsors, and that includes I think Senators Schumer and McConnell. So I'm feeling pretty good about that as as a ultimate vehicle. There's, you know, some time and maybe some room for a bit of negotiation. I guess we'll we'll see. Um, I don't know, Scott, if it'll actually go through a formal conference process. I'm not not an expert in all the ways of Congress, but I think there are maybe a couple of different ways this might happen, including through informal negotiation. And so we'll see. Interesting. Well, one one closing question for you both, which is that this is, of course, part of a sort of longer conversation about ways to shore up. Uh, vulnerabilities or concerns in our elections process uh, more broadly. And hopefully this is the first step in that direction, although who knows if there will be a political will or a congressional threshold to to be met to be able to move forward with any other sorts of reform once this Congress closes out at the end of this year, I guess, through the very beginning of next year. What do you think, what would you like people to start turning their attention to next? What are the unanswered questions or the unaddressed concerns that should be a priority once we get this bill or some version of these bills enacted? What is the next step for those who want to see reforms in this area? Uh, and where we know at least the January 6th committee is at least considering potentially other legislative reforms beyond just Electoral Count Act reform. Well, if I could take a crack at that, I mean, uh, there are other aspects, you know, to uh, improving the process of counting ballots and, you know, the integrity of results so that the kind of election denialism that we're seeing, unfortunately, you know, spread over the last couple of years, um, you know, does not take hold and does not, you know, negate the true will of electoral outcomes. So, you know, I think there can be additional work done in that space. But I also think we should turn the, our attention to, and 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 I th- think it's regrettable that this, as important as the ECA reform is, and as essential as it must be done, the fact that it is, you know, likely now to happen in the lame duck, and and maybe be the only thing that gets done out of Congress on electoral reform, you know, before the new Congress sits next January, means that you know we we haven't been able to have a conversation as a country around what I think is an absolutely essential element of the electoral process to analyze and, and, and realize its weaknesses, which is the way in which primary elections interact with our rules for general elections and really distort the preferences of voters through this very complicated process that we have. We may not have time in this podcast to get into it, but if we if we take a step back and observe the way 
primary elections work and the polarizing effect that they have and how that they can leave the choices in November to be different from what the November voters would have preferred the primary process to give them choices to have, we realize that we are not really running our, our electoral process uh, to effectuate the will of the, the people. And, and this does relate, I think, to the broader topic of the need to protect democracy from the threat of election denialism, because the, the polarizing effect of how we do primary elections is what enables denialists potentially to win more seats in Congress, more win more seats in various offices around the country, like secretaries of state and governors and so forth, when in fact, taking the exact same preferences that the voters have, a, a different system that didn't do primaries the way we do it, wouldn't have the same outcomes. And we have not had a national conversation about just how problematic uh, that element of our electoral system is. And I think we desperately need it. Yeah, I think we, for future podcasts, I think there are uh, many sort of more structural elements of, of the way we conduct elections and the like that are are worthy of tackling. Um, I, I mean, I do think fixing the Electoral Count Act is one of the most important things that Congress can do, sort of legislative fixes right now. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I don't, yeah, we did. I did. Don't keep the eye on the ball and get this across the finish line. You got to do that. That's for sure. That's right. And, you know, it's, it's funny, as important as it is, in some ways, it's a narrow slice of things. And Ned alluded to this, or, you know, we're seeing some troubling trends, particularly at the state level. So outside, you know, the reach of the Electoral Count Act, but at, in terms of state level laws for um, counting and processing votes and some disturbing trends in terms of politicizing that process or, you know, uh, hampering you know, professionals, professional election administrators, and replacing those with sort of more political partisan influence that I think are troubling. I also think, you know, we remiss not to mention just sort of the the sort of extraordinary circumstance we find ourselves in in terms of threats against election workers, who at the end of the day, <laughs> these are the folks that we really rely on to conduct our elections. And it's not an insignificant task, and it requires a lot of people devoting a lot of time. And the, the nature of the threats that we've seen, and those were highlighted through the the hearings of the January 6th Select Committee and in other ways. It's really a troubling trend and actually, I think, a threat to our democracy and the sort of the integrity of our elections. So I think there is there is absolutely more work that I I think and hope that Congress will undertake as, as one element of, of addressing these concerns. Well, we will have to leave the conversation there for now, but I have no doubt we will have opportunity and reason to come back to it again. Until then, though, Ned Foley, Jean-Vierre Nadeau, thank you for joining us here today on the Lawfare Podcast. Thanks, Scott. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please be sure to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to check out Lawfare's other podcasts, including Rational Security, a casual, lighthearted chat about national security news that I co-host each week with my colleagues Quinta Jurassic and Alan Rosenstein. Also, be sure to visit lawfareblog.com for extensive written coverage of national security law and policy issues, and consider becoming a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare to gain access to an ad-free version of this and other Lawfare podcasts, among other perks. This podcast was edited by Jen Pacha Howell, and our audio engineer was Jay Venables of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. 
jewelry that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.